I'd like to invite you to join me in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14 through verse 29. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Would you please stand as we honor the word of the Lord together this morning? Mark writes, King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not because Herod featured, or excuse me, Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oath and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. last Sunday. Do you remember where we left off at the end of the service last Sunday? Pastor Jason was giving us an update on his tennis exploits. Gave us the, the ESPN Sports Center scoop on uh, a recent, recent victory of his. Uh, but immediately after the service, uh, one of our other members of the congregation uh, stood up and said, hey, wait a minute. I played Jason in tennis just about a year ago or some time ago, and uh, I got the impression that uh, Pastor Jason lost that encounter. So, you know, it's just interesting, the choices we make, you know, the, the stories we tell. 
I do want to echo what has been said before. I want to wish all of our mothers a very happy Mother's Day. Um, I don't often do this. I don't like to do this, but particularly from the pulpit. But I do have to publicly disagree with uh, my brother Andrew uh, here. Um, I'm sorry, but your mom is not the best mom. It's my mom. Uh, and a close second, uh, you could practically call it a tie, uh, is my wife, Jen. Uh, when I married her, it was for many reasons, but partially because uh, I knew what kind of tremendous, wonderful mother she was going to be. I mean, the woman has collegiate training in caring for and understanding children. I mean, that's quite an asset and just one of many she possesses. possesses. So I want to wish her a happy Mother's Day as well. Uh, you know, I, I looked online for a list of historical Mother's Day gifts. Like, you know, I thought that maybe President so-and-so might have once given his mother something special, right? And so I just thought that would be interesting to look at. And I couldn't find a list like that. But I, I, I already know what the greatest Mother's Day gift was. Um, uh, basically, it, it happened um, late in the evening, um, about 9.50 p.m., uh, and uh, Mother's Day that year uh, was uh, on the 11th of May. And uh, so the greatest Mother's Day present, I, you know, I happened to be the person who gave it, and it was myself. Uh, I arrived on Mother's Day uh, the year I was born, and so that's an ongoing joke between my mom and I. In fact, when she sent me my birthday card this year, of course, it said, you are the gr my greatest Mother's Day gift ever. So it's just a special day. But it is also the Lord's Day. And so let's dive into what we have here before us this morning. I'm calling this message, Follow Me Part Two. Uh, somehow, for whatever reason, uh, when we have need to preach a message about John the Baptist, apparently I'm the guy you call. Uh, because back in January, when John the Baptist was introduced in the Gospel of Mark, I had the opportunity to preach that message. So let me just bring us back up to speed. When we last saw John the Baptist, he had just been arrested by Herod Agrippa. Just in case you're not familiar, or excuse me, Antipas, that's an error in my notes. Uh, he had just been arrested by Herod Antipas. Just in case you're not familiar with the last Old Testament prophet, here is how the Gospel of Mark introduces him in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Sounds like John the Baptist would have been the kind of guy you would want to have around when the brood X cicadas emerged from the ground and, and you know, infiltrate everywhere. That's one of the things that I love about living in Southern Maryland in 2021. For the most part, those guys are going to be north of us, and uh, that's not going to be happening this year for us. But uh, John would be a handy guy to have around if that was happening. John was different, Okay. And it wasn't just because of the way he dressed or the way he ate. It was more than that. Regardless of what anyone else might think about him, his identity and worldview were grounded 
in God's word and his relationship to the Messiah. He might not have been, excuse me, he might have been in the world, but he was not of it. This morning, we have a simple story told in the form of a flashback. Let's dig into our story and let's find out what ultimately happened to John the Baptist. Beginning in verse 14, Mark tells us that someone he calls King Herod has heard about the activities of Jesus and his followers. Now, to a man like him, anyone making a name for themselves and gathering followers, growing numbers of followers, was a threat to his own power and position. One threat was John's criticism of Herod's marriage to his sister-in-law and niece. But the crowds that gathered to be baptized by John represented an additional threat. It's no wonder then, as Jesus' name was on the rise and as he began to send out his own followers throughout the region to spread his message, that this would-be king took notice. But which Herod is Mark telling us about? Even I got confused at the beginning of the message here. Well, it was the other, other Herod. There were three Herods in Scripture and important to both this time and place in history. There was Herod the Great, who was in power when Jesus was born. This was the King Herod, who attempted to kill Jesus when he was just two years old. And then there was Herod Agrippa I. That was the Herod that the Apostle Paul appeared before, in the book of Acts. The Herod in our story is Herod Antipas. He served as Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea from about 4 BC to 39 AD. The fact that Mark calls him king here is ironic because this Herod never held the title king. In fact, he was ultimately banished from the Roman Empire, or excuse me, yes, from the Roman Empire by Emperor Caligula as a result of his ambition. If you know anything about Roman history, if, Ro- if Emperor Caligula is kicking you out, you're not a good dude. So perhaps the reason Herod was always looking over his shoulder at, at popular teachers like John the Baptist and Jesus was because he himself was, an appetite, was a man with an appetite for power. He was willing to do anything to gain it or to keep it. Being the kind of man that he was, Herod Antipas began to panic the more he heard about the rise of Jesus' notoriety. Still, he was confused about who Jesus was. In verses 14 and 15, Mark summarized the various views of who Jesus could be that were circulating among the people. These speculations included Jesus being the prophet Elijah or one of the other great prophets of the Old Testament. Herod dismissed these other possibilities and concluded that Jesus must be the one he had beheaded, now raised from the dead. This mistaken identity was clearly the result of a tortured conscience. But what had happened? Why had John been arrested, and how did this lead to his execution? Well, that brings us to an inconvenient truth. John the Baptist had been arrested because he was willing to share a truth that Herod and his wife Herodias found quite inconvenient. In case you missed it earlier, Herodias was both Herod Antipas's niece and sister-in-law. She was the daughter of another son of Herod the Great, and she had previously married her another uncle of hers by the name of Philip. In order to marry her, Herod Antipas divorced his previous wife. Anyone feel like they're watching an old episode of Jerry Springer? (laughs) 
I mean, it, you just feel like a fight's going to break out on stage. In verse 18, we're told that John the Baptist, quote, had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, John was not trying to be a killjoy here. He was speaking truth to power with the hope that it would convict and correct a very public sin committed by one who claimed to be the king of the Jews. The problem was that Herod had broken God's law regarding marriage. We read this in Leviticus 20, verse 21. That's right, Leviticus 20, 21. Read into that what you will. This is what it says. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has violated the intimacy that belongs to his brother. They will be childless. Herod didn't like being told that his marriage to Herodias was illegal and immoral in God's sight. But Herodias hated it, and she despised John the Baptist as a result. This hate led her to plot the death of John. But Herod protected John's life out of fear and a, a mixture of respect and bewilderment. So Herod, Herod kept John the Baptist around like some kind of court jester. All of this led to a missed opportunity. Now I know Mark calls the occasion of her daughter's dance at Herod's birthday party an opportune time. But while that was true for Herodias, it was a missed opportunity for Herod. As we read earlier from verses 21 through 25, nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee attended a banquet in honor of Herod's birthday. Now during that party, Herodias' daughter performed a dance, and it's safe to assume that that dance was not G-rated. After her display aroused the guests, her stepfather and great-uncle made a rash and regrettable vow. He said, quote, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. That up to half my kingdom part was almost certainly hyperbole, a statement made for dramatic effect to reinforce his prestige. Essentially, he was promising to give her almost anything she could imagine because he was such a great and powerful man. After consulting with her mother, the girl receives the diabolical request. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. What really stands out here is how cunning she was when she made it clear that she wanted the head on a platter and immediately. We're not told that Herodias included those stipulations, but their impact was to give Herod no opportunity to delay or substitute, to offer her you know, something else. But then again, maybe this was another missed opportunity on Herod's part. He seemed to miss a lot of opportunities. The opportunity to stay faithful to his first wife. The opportunity to repent of his sin in response to John's preaching. And now, the opportunity to be the king he claimed to be and deny this cold, vengeful demand. That's what sin does. Sin often backs us into a corner, making it seem like there's no choice, no way out. But there is always a way out. Her Herod 
failed to seize this opportunity to do the right thing, and it cost John the Baptist his head and his earthly life. Just as Herodias expected, Herod, feeling trapped by his own words and his own pride, immediately sent for the executioner to behead John in prison. Now, on another occasion during his ministry, Jesus told a very short parable, and this, this brought this part of the story brought this to mind. We find this little parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 through 46, where Jesus said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless, priceless pearl, he went and he sold everything he had and bought it. The pearl in this parable has become known as the pearl of great price. For John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven was worth everything he had, even his life. Now, I can't imagine what it was like for him to see that executioner enter his cell, axe or sword in hand, and know what was about to happen. But I'm confident that he didn't regret how he spent his life in purchasing the pearl of great price. I'm sure he didn't question challenging Herod's immoral and illegal marriage to his own brother's wife. Even more than that, I'm certain that John the Baptist is, even at this very moment, with his cousin, Jesus, enjoying his presence and worshiping him with great joy and in never-ending peace. However terrible that one moment was, he has known nothing but peace and joy and love and glory ever since. So what are we to learn about this little diversion in the Gospel of Mark. What are we to, what lessons are we to apply from this story? You might be surprised, there are three. First, we are to accept no substitutes for Christ. We are to accept no substitutes for Christ. Herod's problem is one common in our own society. He knew about Jesus, but he did not know Jesus himself. As a result, Herod heard of Jesus and what he was doing, but he was easily confused because he didn't know the man, the God-man. He was confused. He was gripped by paranoia. Instead of seeking Jesus personally and directly, uh, he was willing to substitute explanations from others for who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. Now, please hear me. If there are two things that you cannot afford to miss in life, it's who Jesus is and what Jesus did for you. Saving faith requires a clear understanding of both. Though all those who follow Christ spend their whole lives mining the depths of Jesus' identity and mission, okay, in other words, though any Christ follower does not need to be an expert you don't need to be a professional-level practitioner to have a new life in Christ. It's only when we turn from our sin, that is, worshiping ourselves, and turn to Christ through faith that we can be saved. That must include two things. First, we must trust in Jesus' identity as the Son of God with all that that entails. Uh, that would include his divinity, the fact that he was both God and man. Uh, his perfect righteousness without sin, his perfect obedience, his virgin birth. We must 
trust in Christ as the Son of God, but also in his finished work of absorbing God's wrath against our sin upon himself on the cross and of rising from the dead so that we can receive forgiveness for our sin and the provision of eternal life. There simply is no other way. Now, I want to remind you of Pastor Jason's message from a few weeks ago when he warned us about being merely familiar with Jesus and thereby rejecting him because we overlook him or we dismiss him too easily. Herod made a similar and equally grievous error when he accepted popular speculation about Christ in place of a personal relationship with him. Everything, everyone in, the, in this world is looking for is really found in Christ. The love, the compassion, the truth, the power, the joy, the peace, all of it, all those things that this world is seeking after and pursuing, all of those things are only truly found in Christ. Everything else is just a substitute, a cheap, fake substitute. But there's another thing. This story calls us to know the difference between losing our head for Christ the right way versus the wrong way. Now, I know when you hear that, you're thinking, uh, is there a right way? Does there have to be a right way? Can we just not have a right way of losing our heads for Christ? Well, one of the greatest struggles facing the church in America today is not, believe it or not, the rising tide of hostility against the gospel and against Christianity. That's legit. That's really happening. But the greatest struggle is the response of the church in America to that rising tide of hostility. You see, somewhere along the line, we overlooked one of the greatest dangers of cultural Christianity. If you're unfamiliar with that term, it's the idea that everyone just assumes that they are Christians because it's baked into the base assumptions of the society. It's, it's inherited somehow from previous generations. And being a Christian in that kind of culture, uh, it comes with little cost and often offers great gain. I used to think that the greatest danger of cultural Christianity was a false sense of security. You know, the, the idea where people would say to themselves, oh, well, my dad's a deacon. Uh, I have an aunt who's really religious. I'm an American, so clearly God loves me more. You know, stuff like that. But now I realize that the greatest danger, perhaps, of cultural Christianity might just be Christians who were so comfortable with the world in previous times that now they have no idea how to handle it when the world does what the world did with Jesus to us, his church. Jesus warned us to expect the kind of treatment John the Baptist received because it's the treatment he received. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus told us, he warned us, he said, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, guess what? The world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
The other week, I read a fantastic article, opinion ed piece, I'm not sure what to call it, uh, but it was published on the website of the Gospel Coalition. And actually, at the very bottom of the sermon notes in your digital bulletin today, there's a link to that article, so you can go straight to it. For those of you uh, watching at home, uh, you can just go to that same page. It's on our website, lbcmd.org, backslash bulletin. That'll bring up uh, the link to today's bulletin, and you just scroll to the bottom of the sermon notes. Uh, but the article was written by Alistair Begg. How many of you have heard of Alistair Begg? Yeah, I figured. So you've heard him preach. You know, it's mesmerizing. You know, he's Scottish, uh, so you, you can just listen to him talk all day. Uh, wonderful, fantastic preacher, I believe, out of Ohio. And this, I'm just going to read a couple of portions. Uh, this is the first one. The article that he wrote is, is entitled, Welcome to Exile. It's okay. It's, excuse me. It's going to be okay. Welcome to Exile. It's going to be okay. This is part of what he wrote in that article. For us in the English-speaking West, this world has tended to feel very much like home, and our treasures have been right before our eyes. Perhaps it is only in the last few years in the United States that we have finally faced that what the Bible says is true. In this world, we really are sojourners and exiles, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. That reality has been clouded and obscured by the size and legal protection of the church in most of the Western world. But this world is not actually our home. We're not supposed to settle down here. We're not supposed to expect the church to be large, influential, and respected. So again, by way of application of this story, you and I must know the difference between losing our heads for Christ the right way versus the wrong way. Talking about the right way, John the Baptist was no pushover. He never went along to get along, if you know what I mean. By no means am I suggesting Christians should do so either. So what's the right way to lose your head for Christ? First and second Peter are very helpful New Testament letters that speak directly to our time and to what, it, what is likely coming in the decades ahead, should the Lord not yet return. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, we receive instruction. Peter writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. Underline that part. But in your hearts... Regard Christ as holy and, re and be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." As Peter describes it in that passage, the right way to lose your head for Christ is as a consequence for boldly sharing his message with the world and openly living in accordance to the gospel before them. There is no shame and there is no mistake in giving your life for Christ as a result of simply and openly representing him. We are his ambassadors representing the kingdom of heaven to the people of the United States, the people of Maryland, and yes, the people of St. Mary's County, including Leonardtown. 
If that costs us our jobs, our comfortable lifestyles, our lives, then so be it. This is especially the case if we're obedient to verse 16 of this passage in Peter, 1 Peter, by offering our witness with gentleness and reverence. Some translations say gentleness and respect. So yes, yes, the church should speak out against immoral laws like the Equality Act, which attempts to coerce churches and Christian institutions among those of other faiths to get with the program of the sexual revolution. Yes, we should warn our culture that the devastating impact about the devastating impact of attempting to redefine gender identity. We should absolutely call our nation to account for, to repent for, the countless millions of precious human lives lost to abortion, which let's be clear, that abortion practice as we know it in our country is there because it's just another expression of that same sexual revolution. It's just another way of, of, of going after that. And it's gripping our country. And sadly, I could go on and on. I'm not going to belabor that any further. But yes, we can speak to those things. We should speak to those things. And here is the key. Like John the Baptist, we should speak clearly, but without sin. It's, call, it's called righteous anger for a reason. Did you notice that when confronting Herod, he didn't call him names. He didn't slander him. He didn't dehumanize him. John simply said, you cannot have your brother's wife. It's against God's law, and you're accountable to God. Well, if that's the right way, what's the wrong way to lose your head for Christ? Well, again, Alistair Begg nails it. Later in his article, he writes this. Yet we find ourselves complaining about everything looking back to the good old days and worrying that the church cannot survive the empire of an aggressively secular post-Christendom. Too much of the public face of evangelicalism is characterized by angry venting or panicking rather than prayerful, humble, calm, and confident belief in a sovereign God who is in control of all things. Again, we are warned by the actions and words of Herod Antipas. How did he act when faced with a perceived threat and criticism? Well, he took John by force, mistreated him, and took the man's life by violence. Those are the actions and words of someone carrying in fear. He was fighting fire with fire. He was responding in kind. He was stooping to the level of those he thought were his enemies. That is not the way... Christians are to behave. How do I know that? Because Paul wrote this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. But now, put away all of the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. If light fights darkness with darkness, how does the light shine? If light allies itself with one form of darkness to fight another form of darkness, how does the flame remain lit? I just want to encourage us. 
all to take stock. What do your posts, what do your conversations, your bumper stickers, etc., whatever, what do they say to the world? Do they, do you find malice, perhaps slander in your speech, whether spoken or typed? Or do you portray that kind of faith in a sovereign God where you're not rattled by how the election went? You're not rattled by some immoral proposal of a law because you expect to be hated. You expect to be treated as Jesus was. You see, unlike John the Baptist who confronted sin and did not choose the lesser of two evils, I see so many Christians on the left and the right, okay, so I'm picking on everybody, falling over themselves for photo ops with politicians, putting up the yard signs, etc. Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because they're relying on their human perspective, and they're thinking to themselves, well, this one's not as bad as the one on the other side. The other, the other, the other side has the Antichrist, so I'm, I'm just settling for this guy. But shouldn't the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace as the hymn so eloquently puts it. So if not, if you examine your speech and you don't, you, you find that malice, you find slander, you find that lack of, of, of faith, you, then you may be losing your head for Christ the wrong way. The last uh, point of application, the last, the last thing we are to take away from this story, I believe, is that you cannot arrest reality. You cannot kill the truth. I want to warn those among us, Christians or not, who may think they're getting away with it. What is it? You and the Lord may be the only ones who know. The Herodians were known for their sexual immorality. Herod Antipas married his own niece and had his great niece dance for his guests at his birthday party. John the Baptist was calling sin, sin, and he was right to do it. Herod thought that he could arrest the one speaking in opposition and the problem would just go away. Herodias hated John's confrontation of her sin and surely convinced herself that his death would be the end of it. But God and his truth are real and authoritative whether we acknowledge it or not. Whether we obey it or not, the word of the Lord is the final word. It's the only word that matters. So our story calls our attention to one of the greatest struggles in human existence. We may be seeing the greatest resurgence of sexual immorality and depravity since the days of Noah or Lot. But don't be fooled. The world is lying to you that sexual intimacy is just a game or a, a recreational pursuit to be experienced with little consequences. Now, we're not going to dive deeply into that subject. But there are two passages addressing sexual immorality that I'd like to bring to your attention. And by the way, if you're thinking, hey, it's Mother's Day, what are we doing talking about sexual immorality? We're following our text. John the Baptist was challenging Herod and Herodias because of their sexual, sexual immorality. So that's, that's why we're here. But one of those passages is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It says, Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. In other words, God's way is simple and lovely. Whatever happens between a man and a woman, 
who have already exchanged public vows to love each other faithfully for life may enjoy the pleasure of their intimacy in private. Anything else, anything else is immoral and unacceptable in God's sight. I don't have to give an exhaustive list of examples. The test is simple. Does it honor the marriage bed? Yes? Okay. No? If it's not happening within marriage, defined by God as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, it's sin. God has made it very simple, very lovely. It's beautiful. So why does God care about this so much? Why must the church be ready to stand unapologetically on this range of issues, yet do so with grace and gentleness and humility? Because God knows his creation. He knows what's best for us, and because he designed it that way. He loves us. Like any good mother or father, he says no out of love so he can lead us to the yes that will truly bless us. He knows the harm that participating in sexual immorality does to us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Like most of our world today, Herod and Herodias thought that they could arrest reality. They thought they could kill the truth, but it can't be done. Right is right, wrong is wrong, and they are not, a su not subject to opinion polls or to feelings. I, I hope this, ha this message hasn't been too big a bummer. I haven't meant to ruin your Mother's Day. But we actually are landing in a place of joy. I know this is counterintuitive. We're talking about a man being beheaded. We're talking about facing persecution and, and so forth. But I want to encourage you to count all of that joy. Do you remember the story of the birth of John the Baptist? How his mother had lived brokenhearted for years, likely decades, longing to have a child. For those of you who know that heartache, I don't bring this up lightly. God knows your suffering and he is your comfort in spite of your pain. But I just keep wondering if Elizabeth was alive when John was executed. Unlike Mary, who we know witnessed her son's crucifixion, we don't know. When John was born, the people were amazed. His parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were amazed. They all wondered, what then will this child become? In all the hopes and dreams they had for John, I'm sure they weren't hoping for martyr. It's not anything I would seek for my child or yours. But what did become of John? Did his life end abruptly and violently? Yes. But Jesus said this about John the Baptist. He said that John the Baptist um, was the greatest, I'll just put it the way Jesus put it, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. So, Let's do a little, little, little poll here. How many of you have been born of a woman? Raise your hand. Okay, okay. If you didn't raise your hand, uh, talk to me afterwards, because uh, I'd love to know your story. So John was greater than you. 
But don't worry, because right after that, this is what Jesus said. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So mothers, parents, raise your children to know and love the Lord. If, if all you can say about your children at the end of their lives is that they were faithful to the end, to their Lord and Savior, that's all you need to have said. Everything else, college, what job they get, who they marry, what kind of house they live in, what kind of car they drive, all that other stuff is so much less compared to raising your children to know and love the Lord. So how do we do this? How do we face this world with its growing hostility? How do we represent Christ to a lost, broken world without adding to the noise and the destruction? Well, we can't do this on our own. Jesus calls us to follow him no matter the cost, and the cost is getting higher in our society. But through Christ, we truly can do all things. Now, that's not just a cliche to justify your next yacht purchase or not studying for your next test. It's a rallying cry that tells us we're not being asked to do this on our own. The Lord is with his people. His call to us today and every day is follow me. So what about you? Will you follow him? Our hope is in him.